Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 239 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, Jimmy will be answering weird questions for New Year's. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Since it's just about New Year's Day, we're bringing you this special episode of Weird Questions. And Happy New Year, too. And and Happy New Year. With this episode with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy, what topics are you going to be answering questions about today? We're going to be looking at subjects like Captain America, time travel and marriage. Also, Johnny Cash's song, When the Man Comes Around and the Bible References in it. Did Mary have two spouses? Was a miraculous rod passed down through history? Did the Holy Spirit take human form in the Bible? St. Patrick and snakes. What wounds did the resurrected Jesus have? Uh, Also, the relationship between his wounds and those of stigmatics. Genetic mutations and evolution. Did Jesus bilocate in the New Testament? And what happened with baby Jesus' umbilical cord? Great questions. Let's hear the answers. Senior apologist here at Catholic Answers, the author of a whole bunch of things, including The Bible is a Catholic Book and uh, Daily Defense, 365 Days Plus One to Becoming a Better Apologist, and also the proprietor of a growing corner of the internet, Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious Worlds. Uh, Jimmy, thank you for coming back for hour two. Hey, my pleasure. And uh, did you enjoy the weirdness the first hour? Oh, yeah, there were a lot of good questions. I thought so too. Very uh, uh, excellent weird questions. A whole a whole stack more of weird questions for you this hour. Uh, for, for those who don't know, one day Jimmy and I were just talking when we were doing weird questions with Jimmy Aiken and we said we'd like some music well, be you great. said it oh I said it mm-hmm. it'd be nice to have some music for the show mm-hmm. and I, I specifically mentioned and your wish was their command and, and Eric and NATO came through for us and wrote that beautiful theme and I'm really glad that they're apparently very good musicians because imagine if it was like bad yeah. you'd be like oh Thank you so much for that theme. This is a really good no, one. Cy is really excited about it. He's, I mean, I you, love it. you talked about it off the air and how much you like it. Oh, I love it. I like it too, but I just want to, you know, you're the host and your opinion really is more dispositive than mine. Yeah. And, yeah. and, it, and, and I get such a yeah, kick out of it. I like it too. Especially uh, I like the end. Where we like the, well, it's all beepy and stuff at the end? No, not, not necessarily. I mean, I like that part, but I like the feel, the flow oh, yeah. towards the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, good job, fellas. Yeah. Appreciate it. Uh, now we're going to have to do a lot more uh, weird questions with Jimmy Aiken because I just like listening to the music. This one comes from Mitchell. This will be our first for this hour. Our first weird question for Jimmy. They come via the internet, so uh, no calls today. But Mitchell asks, can you explain the biblical references in the Johnny Cash song, When the Man Comes to Town. And is it biblically accurate? I'd love to be able to share Jimmy's thoughts on this on social media. So here's, do you want me to read the lyric that was given? Uh, no, that's actually, that's a note for me. Oh, okay. Oh, 
Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, actually, the title of the song is "When the Man Com- or the Man Comes Around." Oh, okay. And it's a song that Johnny Cash did towards the end of his life, and it does contain a. It's a kind of an eerie song. Okay. And it contains a bunch of biblical references, and basically the theme of the song is accountability that we're all going to be judged for what we've done. And so to communicate that, uh, the lyrics of the song incorporate a variety of biblical themes. The the lyrics specifically are inspired by the King James Version of the Bible. So there are uh, passages, if you're familiar with other translations as your primary translation, you may not recognize some of them. For example, one of the books, because it's dealing with with judgment and responsibility and the last things, because he's coming to the end of his life. Mm -hmm. You know, he he, there's a kind of personal element. He knows he's going to be meeting his maker soon. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is ultimately true of all of us. And he's trying to communicate that through the song. So it's natural for the book of Revelation. To, pray, to play a prominent part in the lyrics. Now, I don't know who wrote the song, but it's certainly very appropriate for Johnny, Johnny Cash. Yeah. Among the things that are referred to are these four entities that stand around God's throne in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. In some translations, they're called the four living creatures, but in the King James Version, they are called beasts because a beast is a living creature. And that could cause some confusion because there's a more famous beast later in the book of Revelation. But the word is different. It's a different word in Greek for beast for that one. So in Greek, you wouldn't have this confusion. But if if you don't know the King James in English, you might, because you might be thinking of the, the later beast that's bad. These beasts or living creatures are good. They're they're throne attendants for God. OK. And um, and so some of the lyrics are taken from Revelation four and five and, and, and early on in Revelation where Jesus, the lamb, is in heaven opening the seals on a scroll. And a series, this is like chapter six, and a series of things happen. And John writes from the King James, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse. Now, in the interpret in the history of biblical interpretation, this white horse, the writer of the white horse is often understood as Jesus. Because later in Revelation, in chapter 19, Jesus does appear on a white horse. Mm -hmm. But all kinds, white horses are prestigious, not just because they look cool. They also even are prestigious in horse society because white horses tend to have better vision. And so herds will rely on the judgment of the white one as like the one who's kind of keeping an eye out for the whole flock or whole herd. And so white horses are prestigious. And so not only would uh, would a white horse be appropriate for Jesus? Also, it would be appropriate for any king. And if you okay. look now, so this is my personal view of the first four seals. John sees a, a group of horsemen being released with each seal being removed. First one is white. Second one is red and is connected with war. Third one is black and is connected with famine. Fourth one, it actually says in, in Greek, green. Yeah. Uh, and is connected with death and and so forth. So I see a natural progression there. We're told the first one is a conqueror going out to conquer. 
And so uh, given the themes in the rest of the book, I would say this is an this is a symbol of an upcoming war involving the Roman Empire. And ah. and so you have a conqueror going out, which leads to war, which leads to famine, which leads to death. And so I don't see personally, I don't see the first horseman, the white horseman in this chapter as being Jesus. I see it being a pagan conqueror. I got you. Um, but it's often interpreted the other way. And that's how it's taken in this song. The white horseman seems to be Jesus and the, the horseman of the white horse seems to be Jesus in Johnny Cash's song. Later, there is another one. Now, I mentioned in Greek, it actually says horos, which means green where we get chlorophyll. Right. But it often gets translated in English as pale. Oh, because right. horses yeah. don't naturally come in green. No, that would be a horse of a he, different color. In, indeed. And there's only one of them. And he's it. Um, but later we read, and I, again, from the King James, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts. And that would be God's voice, because that's who's in the midst of the four beasts. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and his and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. So that also gets referred to in the song. Um, it's a reminder of how we're all going to die and we're all going to need to be prepared for that. Also, uh, the song refers to Armageddon, which is mentioned in Revelation, a climactic battle between good and evil. And it refers to golden crowns, which Revelation depicts the saints in heaven as wearing and as an act of worth. So these are like rewards that uh, the saints have been given for serving God. They get to wear golden crowns, but they recognize in Revelation that they're gifts of God. So in tribute to God, they like take off their crowns also sometimes and throw them at God's feet right. as a tribute to him for what he's given them. And that gets mentioned in the song. There also are references to some other passages in the New Testament in the song. Uh, for example, in Matthew 25, we have the parable of the ten virgins where uh, you have the wise and the foolish virgins. They're waiting for the bridegroom, who's a symbol of Jesus, to come. Right. So they can start the celebration of the wedding. And uh, and the bridegroom is delayed. So they are um, their oil lamps start to go out. But the wise virgins have brought extra oil and foolish virgins have not. And so the wise virgins are like trimming their wicks to get ready as the bridegroom comes. And, um, and that gets referred to in the song that the, the virgins are trimming their wicks. And then there's a reference to the book of Acts that may be hard for some people to understand. Um, it's found in chapter nine in the King James. It's not in Many modern translations, though, because some manuscripts, some older manuscripts do not have this verse. Oh, and so it okay. doesn't appear in all Bibles. But basically, in the conversion of St. Paul, Jesus is talking to St. Paul and he refers to in the King James. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And most people will have today will have no idea what that is about. What does it mean to kick against the pricks? Well, this is a horsemanship metaphor that is being used. Um, historically, what, 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 he, what Jesus is doing is depicting St. Paul as a horse 
or possibly a mule um, that is being ridden. And instead of going where God, the writer, wants St. Paul to go, Mm -hmm. St. Paul has been resisting God's efforts to guide him in the right direction. And that is causing problems for St. Paul the same way it would cause problems for a horse being ridden to resist where the owner wants the horse to go, where he's trying to guide the horse, because the horseman has spurs or pricks. Ah, Historically, there are two kinds of spurs. There are what are called prick spurs that are like a... um, uh, like a, a little sharp stick. Yeah. Uh, it may be blunted, but it'll be like a little stick or what are called rowel spurs that have the like rotating star yeah. with the spikes on it. Right. Either way, whether you're using prick spurs or rowel spurs, if the horse is resisting where you want it to go, you're going to apply the spurs more vigorously and it's going right. to hurt the horse. It's going to cause the horse some discomfort. I mean, you don't want to injure it, but it's going to cause the horse discomfort if if it resists going where it's being guided. And in the same wall, same way, St. Paul has been suffering because he's been resisting the guidance God has been giving him. Metaphorically, uh, he's like a horse that's been kicking against the pricks or kicking yeah. against the spurs. Yeah. Uh, th- thanks very, very much for that uh, question, uh, Mitchell. I'm going to go listen to the song now. I really appreciate it. Uh, let's go to Pat's question. Pat says this, Jimmy, I understand that in devotional language, the Blessed Mother is the spouse of the Holy Spirit, but it's confusing to hear in the same prayer that the Blessed Mother is also the spouse of Joseph. Did Mary have two spouses? Also, I once said that Joseph was the husband of Mary and was corrected that he was the spouse of Mary. And that made a big difference. She explained the marriage of Joseph and Mary was only for show and the real marriage was to the Holy Spirit. So what's the right right way to explain this gently without having to disturb the pious fictions that people have lived with for a long time? Uh, So I'll get to the second question. The first one, I don't know what the difference would be. Uh, between saying husband or of Mary versus spouse of Mary, because a husband is just a male spouse. Yeah. And Joseph was obviously male. So if, if he was the spouse of Mary at all, he was Mary's husband. Right. I don't I don't know what other meanings this person may have been investing in the terms husband and spouse. But it seems to me that at least based on the common understanding of these terms in English, he would be her husband. Mm-hmm. Also, um the uh, the church does not shy away, and this more gets to the second question. The church does not shy away from uh, from referring to Joseph as Mary's husband. That's what it or or spouse. Either way, um, in terms of her marriage being o- to Joseph being only for show, that's more, that's certainly not the historic understanding. This is a question that theologians have talked about for a long time. I mean, hundreds of years. Uh, And the the established received view, like of Aquinas and other people, um, is that no, 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 this was a real marriage. Yeah. Um, Now, it wasn't a consummated marriage, but it was still a valid, actual, real marriage. And um, so I would say that. Rather that as a way of helping people who have a certain interpretation of the relationships here that they view as the pious one and that they're used to, I would simply rather than say, well, you're wrong, 
um, I would say, well, that's not what St. Thomas Aquinas said. St. Mm-hmm. Thomas Aquinas, that way you, you, you aren't the bad guy. Yeah. If, because oh, that's if, a good point. If, Let Aquinas if, be the yeah. bad guy. Well, and hopefully they'll realize Aquinas is not the bad guy yeah. because he's a doctor of the church and, and their pious sentiments should tell them they need to take what Aquinas says seriously. And it's not just Aquinas. It's way more than him. But uh, I would say as a way of gently helping people to if you're going to address this question, I would say talk about Aquinas and other figures from church history who have said, no, this was a real genuine marriage between Mary and Joseph. And uh, if you want to say that now the status then of the claimed marriage with the Holy Spirit could be understood as um, as metaphorical. Mm hmm or as literal, if it's literal, then we have a case of, um, of polyandry or poly something, yeah. because Mary, she is literally married to Joseph. If she has a second literal marriage at the same time, mm-hmm. then this is either this is polyandry or poly something. And and that's quite problematic. Yeah. So you might want to say, well, the relationship with the Holy Spirit is more profound than her relationship with Joseph, and it's depicted as a marriage. And I would agree. Yeah, it's obvious it, it, in in Catholic tradition, it's obviously depicted as a marriage, but it, and it is more profound than her relationship with Joseph. But I would hesitate to say that it's a marriage in this in the same natural sense yeah. that she has with Joseph. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Pat. Appreciate the question. Uh, weird questions with Jimmy Aiken today on Catholic Answers Live. Uh, we continue with a question from Pat. I am reading a book, The Rod of an Almond Tree in God's Master Plan. Uh, basically, the theory is that God gave Adam a rod from the tree of life when he expelled Adam and Eve from Eden. The miraculous rod makes its way from Adam to Enoch, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, and David. David thrusts it into the ground while fleeing Jerusalem from his son Absalom. The miraculous rod grows into a tree that Christ was crucified upon to atone for our sins. Have you heard of this theory before? What do you think potential topic for mysterious world? I have not heard of this theory before. Um, and it sounds, I mean, it, it, it I'm I'm a little wondering, is this meant to be like a historical fiction novel? Yeah, yeah. Because this this is such a we have nothing suggesting this in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And and so and this is this sounds to me like a scenario someone would come up with for a work of fiction. But from the fact that the question is being asked by Paul I'm I'm guessing maybe no this is someone is really claiming this. Um however if it is being claimed I would say it's extraordinarily improbable. Uh not only do we not have a reference to a rod being passed down we have no reference to one being passed down from Adam or any of these other people, we have a reference to uh, Moses having a rod and Aaron having a rod, but mm-hmm. they weren't the same rod. Yeah. Also, Aaron's was put in the Ark of the Covenant yeah. and it didn't get taken out by David. And, and 
then having it miraculously turn into a tree that provides the lumber for the cross, all of that, you just have a whole series of undocumented claims. And if any one of the links in the chain fails, the whole thing falls apart. So I would think it's extraordinarily unlikely. Also, if it was an, um, if it was a, uh, an almond, a piece of almond wood, like Aaron's rod, and it came from a from the tree of life, then that would mean the tree of life was an almond tree, and we would all be immortal by drinking almond milk. And that doesn't seem to be the case. So I would say both due to lack of any kind of biblical foundation for this and the fact that all, drinking almond milk or eating almonds does not make you immortal are both significant strikes against this as a um, as a theory. Well, however interesting it might be as a novel premise. Uh, may I throw out a counter argument to you? OK, um, uh, almond milk hasn't been around that long. Maybe people who drink it almond, are. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> almond, Maybe they are immortal. <laughs> well, almond milk actually has been around for a long time oh, because okay. it's extremely easy to make. Oh, you, you just take it hasn't been commercially available for long. Oh, OK. But um, to make almond milk, I've made it. All you do is you take almonds, you put them in water, you crush them up and you run it through a cloth filter or some kind of filter. Oh. And, and you have almond milk. Oh, okay. And you can make right. it out, out of other nuts, too. There's cashew milk, there's peanut milk, there's all kinds of different nut milks that you make the same way. Oh, okay. So I thought almond milk was an entirely new phenomenon, and it's just unproven yet whether we're immortal mm. from drinking it. Not that I'm immortal from drinking it, because I'm not drinking it. <laughs> there would already be some immortal people out there. Yeah. All right. Uh, who was that that asked that question? That was Paul. Paul, thanks uh, very much. Appreciate the question. Jimmy Aiken, our guest. It's Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken today, and this one comes from Anna Marie. Anna Marie asks, I, uh, well, she says, I would like to direct this question to Jimmy Aiken. Is it possible the person of the Holy Spirit made brief appearances in the Bible when Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene in the tomb and to the two followers on the way to Emmaus and to the seven disciples fishing. Is it possible that their eyes did not see him because they were not seeing God, the son at first, but God, the Holy Spirit for a brief time? So anytime you have a question involving God and is it possible that? Yeah, right. Well, it's certainly it's almost always logically possible unless it unless the terms involved involved entail a logical contradiction. Like, can God make a four sided triangle? Yeah. The answer is going to be yes, it's possible, at least logically. Um, So could does God's omnipotence allow the Holy Spirit to manifest uh, oh. to the disciples' eyes on these occasions before the Holy Spirit ceases manifesting visually and allows them to see Jesus? Yes, of course, God's omnipotence can do that. Right. Um, do we have evidence for that happening? Well, I don't think the biblical text provides us with such evidence because it, it doesn't say they saw someone else or they saw the Holy Spirit. It just says they didn't recognize Jesus. In the case of John's gospel, it's because he's way in the distance. They're out on the, they're out on the lake and there's just some little tiny looking figure on the shore. They're not close enough to see that there's nothing miraculous that suggests itself about that account. The one that does involve a miracle of some kind is the one that's mentioned in Luke's, in Luke's gospel, where the two disciples on the road to Emmaus spend an extended period with Jesus up close and still don't recognize him. And whether that's because he's taken another form 
or whether it's because they have induced prosopagnosia, prosopagnosia being where your brain is unable to fully process face information and recognize people even though you know them. Uh, you know, both of yeah. those could be possible, but it doesn't, the text doesn't ever suggest it's the Holy Spirit. Now, could the Holy Spirit be appearing in Scripture? Yes. Obviously, the Holy Spirit manifests on the day of Pentecost. Uh, at, you know, the tongues of flame represent the action and of the Holy Spirit. Also, it's commonly understood among many interpreters that the, uh, the cloud that appears at the Mount of Transfiguration may be a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Wind is another symbol of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does manifest in in various places. And I, I do want to say that Anna Maria had a ex- rather extensive case based on parallels, you know, in different passages. Unfortunately, we weren't able to quote the whole thing. But the general principle is, yes, the Holy Spirit does manifest on some occasions. One thing she asked about was the angels at the tomb, if I recall correctly. and or at least actually there is in early Christian history some tradition that the Holy Spirit may have been one of those angels. If you, um, if you read the Gospel of Peter, which is a second century document, they depict the two angels at the tomb carrying Jesus out on their shoulders. And if you go back to the first century document, the Ascension of Isaiah, which was, as we said, written about AD 67, in my estimation, the two angels that carry him out are identified as Michael and the Holy Spirit. So there's actually a first century tradition. It's not canonical and you shouldn't rely on it, but there is some thought that one of those may have been the Holy Spirit manifesting. At least that, that idea is there. Yeah. And uh, so this would be, um, this doesn't reduce the whole the Holy Spirit to say that, but but the, just that the Holy Spirit is His own messenger in that case. Didn't send an angel, right? But, yeah, but, the Holy Spirit is functioning as a messenger of God, which yeah. is all the word angel means. It doesn't mean created intellect. It just yeah. means any anyone that's functioning on God's behalf. Jimmy Aiken's our guest. That's a good thing, too, because it's uh, Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken today. More right after this. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Michael T., Christopher Y., Lars S., Don H., and Cindy M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Well, that was weird. To not hear the weird music was actually weird. There's our regular music for Catholic Answers Live, but we're not doing a regular show. We're doing weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy, of course, senior apologist here at Catholic Answers and uh, the proprietor, the maker of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Uh, Usually I ask you about uh, what's dropping this week on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, but I don't actually know what week that 
we're going to be <laughs> this, airing this. this in. Yeah, we'll be airing yeah. this. So, um, but uh, but all is well at Jimmy Yankee's Mysterious World. Oh, yeah. You keep pursuing mysteries. You haven't mm-hmm. run out of mysteries yet. Uh, not not remotely. No. Uh, let's go to Philip's question. Oh, look at that! Another Winter Soldier question. That is great. Two Winter Soldier questions in one. Well, the last one was about Bucky Barnes, but same person. This one's about Cap. Oh, it is. Oh, okay. In the Winter Soldier movie, I like how you just call him Cap. You guys mm-hmm. are like that. You can just call him Cap. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the Winter Soldier movie, Captain America meets his old love interest from before he traveled into the future and finds out that she married and grew old with someone else after she thought Captain America had died back in the 1940s. In the latest Avengers film, Captain America travels back in time to before Peggy, when Peggy Carter married this other man, and he marries her instead, thereby preempting the unnamed other man from ever marrying Peggy Carter. While Captain America was traveling back in time like this, would it have been adultery for him to have desire for and even make the move to pursue and marry a girl who he knew was married in his own future time, but not in the time he was currently traveling to? Seems like this might be adultery for him, but not for her. What do you think? Well, it's definitely not adultery for Peggy Carter. Um, yeah. But... Uh, we do. We are in a territory that at least sounds kind of like we might have a violation of the ninth commandment here. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife. Ah, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Right now, the way that commandment works, though, it presupposes that the other person is actually your neighbor's wife. Right. It does not apply if they're not actually married. So, if, for example, it's established, you know, they get an annulment and and even though they may have been living together for a long time and regarding each other as husband and wife for a long time, if it turns out they were never validly married, you could then make your move, mm-hmm. so to speak. Also, if and, you know, there's a saying that applies to dating situations, all is fair in love and war. And the idea is that, okay, even if she's dating someone right now, yeah. I think it would be better for her and me to be together. And even though she may currently have affections for this other guy, it's okay for me to show her what it would be like for us to be married. Okay. And and so it would be legitimate, even though the other guy's not going to like it, it could be legitimate for me to make my case and say, I think it would be better for us to be together rather than for you and him to be together. Mm-hmm. So there are, and that's again possible because they're not actually married at the moment, even though they may have feelings for each other at the moment. So in Captain America's case, now obviously this scenario involves time travel where it is possible to change the past. Yeah. So once Cap gets back to the 1940s and Peggy is not married to this other man, she is available and it he is not interfering with uh with an engagement or an actual marriage mm-hmm. because it's before all that happened and so if it, it, i would say it's it is not adulterous for him to uh to act on his desires to try to arrange for a marriage with the woman he loves that would be legitimate for him to do he can make his case it's going to create an alternate timeline it's yeah. not going to stop the other timeline where she married the other guy. Oh, okay. That's still going to be out there in the multiverse because you can't, in order to avoid paradoxes, where we have branching timelines. So there's still going to be this other timeline where she married the other guy, but it's okay for Cap to initiate a new timeline where he gets to be with her. Having said that, 
there is something icky about this. If <laughs> if 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 he's not back in the 1940s, if yeah. he's in the 2020s and he's engineering this scenario, well, then we're in a position where there's at least a case to be made that his he's violating the ninth commandment in his heart. Maybe at least we're much closer to that. But yeah. once he's actually back in the 40s and she is not married, then she is by definition available at that point. Um, I, I like the use of the word icky there because I was wondering, it, it does, it has an icky feeling, even if um, it's not out, you know, this blatant adultery or something, right. which is beyond icky. Um, icky being a lesser uh, violation than a moral violation. Right. Well, potentially. Yeah. All right. More immoral things can also be icky. Well, yeah, that's right. All right. Um, OK, so uh, uh, thank you very. Who is that from? Oh, that was from Philip. OK, Philip, thank you very much for that question. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Now uh, a question from Joseph. What's the deal with St. Patrick and the snakes on the plane? Question mark. I can't find anything definitive out there. Okay, so he's referring now snakes on the plane, P L A I N. I N. Well, uh, he's what he's really referring to is the movie Snakes on a Plane on an airplane. Oh, I missed that. But he's envisioning, he's punning on that as if there's a plane in Ireland, because Uh, that's what he's really thinking of is the legend that St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland, and that's why there are no snakes in Ireland. Mm hmm. Well, that's that's a legend. Uh, that's not actual. There have never been snakes in Ireland, not in human times. Uh, there are not in tens of thousands of years at any rate. The reason is before about 10,000 years ago, we had an ice age going and reptiles don't cotton to ice ages. They do not. Or at least not to areas that are covered by glaciers in ice ages. And that's what Ireland and the British Isles in general were like. Uh, before about 10,000 years ago, they were covered in ice. And so you you didn't have reptiles like snakes living there at that time. So maybe, you know, in the distant past, there were some snakes there, but they died out when the ice age came. Right. So then uh, you had the thawing of the glaciers beginning around 10,000 years ago. So about 8,000 BC or so. And and Ireland quickly became an island and land snakes don't cross water well. Also, um, sea snakes don't get out of the water well. So once Ireland became an island, there was no easy way for snakes to get there. And so they haven't been there for the last 10,000 years. Now, there are snakes in England uh, on Great Britain, you know, England, Scotland, Wales. Um, And the reason for snakes in Britain is because it it, because it today is also an island. But before about 6500 B.C., it wasn't. There was a land, it's it's a little inaccurate to call it a land bridge because it was even bigger than that. It was a whole area that connected what's now Britain to continental Europe. Yeah. And it was called Doggerland. At least that's the modern name for for it. It's this area and it's now submerged. It's called Doggerland. It flooded fairly rapidly about 6500 BC. But in that window between when the glaciers melted about 85 
1000 uh, or 8000 8, BC and when Doggerland flooded in 6500 BC you had at least 3 species of snakes ah. make the migration from continental Europe over Doggerland to Great Britain and so that's why Great Britain has like 3 snake species including of course the black adder um and also like a garden snake and there's one more um but that's why Britain has those, even though it's an island. Incidentally, other there are, are other lands that do not have snakes besides Ireland. Greenland does no not snakes. have snakes. And, of course, it's already under a lot of ice. Iceland does not have snakes. And Antarctica does not have snakes. And all three of those are very cold. Yeah. One place that's not very cold but is like Ireland in not having snakes because it's an island is New Zealand. I didn't know that. New Zealand's yeah. got no snakes. No huh? snakes in New Zealand. Ah, they got plenty of them over in Unless Australia. Unless they come on a plane. Yes. Now we went right back to that night. Well done, Jimmy. Well done bringing that full circle. So uh, just so for a quick explanation then, mm-hmm. which, which saint drove the saints out of Antarctica? Do we have? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know of any saints that oh, have been okay. in Antarctica. Right. Not any canonized ones. All right, Joseph. Thanks. Uh, Jimmy Robb asks this. Why does the glorified Jesus not have the wounds of the scourging at the pillar or crown of thorns while keeping the nail marks and side wounds? Well, I don't know that he doesn't. Um, what The only reason that we have the mention of the uh, Palm marks and the side wound is because Thomas said he wanted to touch them. And that was kind of Thomas was boasting a little bit, saying, I won't believe unless I get to touch these particular wounds. Um, And so when Jesus shows up at the end of John 20 to Thomas, he's manifesting those. As we covered earlier, I don't think he has to manifest them, but he is manifesting them on that occasion for Thomas. And... I have always understood it to mean, oh, and he was manifesting all of the wounds he received, but these are the, including the crowning of thorns and the scourging at the pillar. But these are the ones that are, that Thomas touched because, and they're mentioned in the text, because they're the ones that were relevant to Thomas's boast. Uh, You know, if Thomas had said, I won't believe unless I touch his hand wounds and his side wounds and his forehead wounds and yeah. his back wounds, then all four of them, or feet wounds, then all of them might be mentioned. I assume they're all there. I can't prove that. It's possible that Jesus just manifested these two wounds, but my my sense would be that he probably was manifesting all five. All right. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Rob. Appreciate the question. Jennifer uh, has a, a question also about uh, the wounds of Christ. She says, if Jesus's nails were in his wrists, according to the Shroud of Turin. Why do stigmatic saints have the wounds in their hands? So this presupposes that the Shroud of Turin is the actual burial cloth of Christ, which many people regard it as. It also presupposes a particular under interpretation of the Shroud that sees the uh, nails uh, being driven through the palms. However, if memory serves, there are some people who interpret the Shroud as also interpreting them as coming out on the back of the wrists. So like they're driven through the palm in such a way that they are both in the palm and in the back of the wrist. So I would have to do more research to, you know, to assess the legitimacy of that interpretation of the shroud. But if memory serves, there is a kind of both and interpretation of the, of the wounds on the shroud. Um, Having said that, 
why would stigmatic saints have them manifesting only in the palms and not like through the back of the wrist or or through the wrist itself? Um, the answer is Christian art, because what God is doing in mystical phenomena, including visions and including uh, stigmata, is trying to communicate a spiritual message to humanity, either to the person in, in, in question or perhaps to a broader group of people. But basically, it's to... It, it's not to teach us about history. It's to communicate a spiritual message. God is interested in drawing people to him spiritually, not in satisfying their curiosity about historical details. And so as a result, God tends to meet people in mystical experiences in a way that they can understand that resonates with their understanding and culture. So people in different cultures may, for example, see the Virgin Mary dressed as a member of their culture, yeah. not as what she literally would have worn in first century Jewish Palestine. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, and like, you know, at, at, at Fatima and so forth, they were seeing Mary wearing shoes of a different kind than they would have had in the first century. Um, so uh, similarly, when Jesus appears uh, or when it, when a phenomenon connected to Jesus appears, it's accommodated to the understanding of the person receiving it. So if the, per, if the stigmatist receiving stigmata has always seen it, Christian art with yeah, it depicted oh, yes. through the palms, that's the way God's going to reach the person. Because God is trying to teach something about the mystical, spiritual significance of Christ's suffering on our behalf, not the precise details of where the wounds were. And this is something that actually was discussed uh, by Pope Benedict XIV, uh, back actually when he was a cardinal. He wrote a very famous treatise on the canonization of, uh, of saints and the beatification of blesseds. And he talked in it about mystical phenomena, including visions. And one of the questions he considered was, why do some visionaries see Christ crucified in three places, like through each hand and then both feet together? Right. And why do some see him being crucified with four nails uh, yeah. rather than three? And Benedict XIV's answer was, because of the consciousness of the seer. Yeah. God is not trying to teach us details about the nails that would satisfy our historical curiosity. He's trying to communicate something of spiritual significance to the, to the visionary. And the same thing would apply to a stigmatist. A stigmatist is not receiving the stigmata to satisfy historical curiosity. And so we shouldn't rely on on the manifestations of particular stigmata as definitively corresponding to exactly where the wounds appeared on Christ. Right. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Thanks, Jennifer. Appreciate that question. Weird questions for Jimmy Aiken this hour because it's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. And up next is a question from Mark. How can genetic mutations cause evolution? Okay. So we have a couple of Mark's granting a couple of concepts that we have genes, you yes. know, that, that are in our cells and that determine the way our bodies work. He's also granting that there are mutations that occur. And so the question is then just why would this phenomenon lead to the process of evolution? Well, the answer is because uh, when a genetic mutation occurs, and they can occur for a variety of reasons, um, but like a key way is through um, r radiation damage. 
you know, we have, we live in an environment that naturally has a certain amount of radiation in it. Um, and at, at times also there are copying errors that are, uh, that our oh, cells yeah. make in, in, dupl in, in duplicating the, G the DNA in them. They're, they'll make copying mistakes. And so one way or another, we get these, these changes in the DNA. Now, our cells actually have very rigorous error correcting systems to avoid mutation, but they don't always work. And so every human being in every life form really has some genetic variations in it. Not every cell in your body has exactly the same genes because of these mutations that occur. If they occur in the right cells in your body, they can be passed on to your offspring. And then the question becomes, like, it doesn't matter if you've got a mutant cell in your right ear, because yeah. that's not connected with your reproductive system. So that's not, go not going to your kids. Right. But if they get passed on to your offspring, then the question is, how will this variation in the genes manifest? Much of the time, it makes no difference. Yeah. It, 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 it just doesn't do anything. Other times, though, it's like an error in computer code. Much of the time, if there's a little error in a computer code, it doesn't affect anything. Other times, it will harm the uh, the 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 resulting offspring um, or just the same way you make big enough changes randomly in a computer program, it's going to harm the program's ability to function. Yeah. But occasionally a change is good. It, it actually benefits the uh, in the case of a computer, you know, a programmer goes in, makes a minor tweak, makes a little change in the programming. It can make the program run better. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, in uh, in in life forms, a little change in the genetic code can make the resulting offspring run better uh, in the environment they find themselves. And if that uh, happens, if a particular mutation helps the offspring survive and reproduce better, then it's going to get passed on to their offspring. Right. And over the course of time, it, if it's really advantageous, it can spread to an entire population. And over time, if you have enough mutations develop, you can have life forms that start resembling each other less, like dogs were originally wolves. But obviously, uh, as a result of the way they be become domesticated, dogs and wolves are no longer exactly the same. Right. And in, if you advance that out 100,000 years from now, dogs may be so distant from wolves genetically that they couldn't successfully breed with them, in which case they would be considered a different species. So the, it basically, in the case of, of dogs, they're becoming better and better adapted to human life because they're living with humans. That's of benefit to them. You know, it promotes their survival and reproduction if they right. fit in with human society better. And over the next hundred thousand years, they would become even more domesticated and potentially would be a completely different population genetically than wolves. So they couldn't breed. In the case of humans, we see this happening as well. Um, one of the things that um, that we have evidence for is increasing intelligence in human beings over the last several thousand years, because we've been fighting a lot as humans. Oh, and intelligence. And it, intelligence is key, a key asset in conflict. You want to be able to outthink your opponent. Mm -hmm. And so that creates what a biologist calls selection pressure. Uh-huh. 
on the our intelligence genes that have been driving an increase in human intelligence. So as one population gets smarter of humans, other populations get smarter, and it it a rising tide floats all boats, yeah. as they say. Interestingly, sometimes a genetic now the in order for a genetic mutation to benefit an organism, it's only in a given environment. If you take that organism out of its environment and put it somewhere else, it may not perform the same function. Right. And it may be a mixed blessing. Yeah. An example of that is the uh, genetic variation that is responsible for sickle cell anemia. Okay. Now, sickle cell anemia, uh, this variation is common among African people of African descent. It's also common among certain people of Italian descent and a few other places in the world. And what they found by studying it is that the reason that this variation that allows for sickle cell anemia is there, which is a a bad disease, if you get it. The reason that it's there in these populations is because it also has a benefit. The, The variation that allows for sickle cell anemia also helps you survive malaria. Yeah. And so in areas where they have... A lot of mosquitoes, like in parts of Africa and in parts of Italy that were originally swamps, you had people who, in order to survive malaria, they they had this um, variation that helped them with the malaria, but it also had a side effect of allowing for sickle cell anemia. And so that's the reason why even though it's the anemia problem is a real problem, that variation has been has still continued in these populations because it has this other benefit. Right. right. And so sometimes genetic variations are, are mixed and they cause you some problems, but they solve others. Uh, Mark, thanks very much. Appreciate that. A great question. Uh, weird questions with Jimmy Aiken today. Mitch asks this, Jimmy, did Jesus bilocate or multilocate in the New Testament? We know he at least bilocated because he he does that at the Last Supper. Um, when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Well, he's obviously standing there in his physical body manifesting itself, but he's also in the Eucharistic elements he's holding in his hands. So that's at least by location in the full physical sense. Um, in, could he have multilocated? Well, the best place to look for that would be in the resurrection appearances, Um, on the other hand, because he does appear to a lot of people in fairly rapid succession. However, I don't know that that would be by location in, in the full sense or multi-location in the full sense, because he may have just been rapidly moving from one place to another, which would be teleportation rather than by location or multi-location. Uh, Mitch, uh, thank you very, very much. Uh, Rob asks this, Jimmy, who would have cut Jesus, Jesus's umbilical cord? Or did the virginal birth not require this to happen? We don't know. Um, it's if if the uh, if there was a midwife present, presumably the midwife would have uh, would have cut and tied the umbilical cord. On the other hand, there are very early records from the first century of Jesus having a miraculous birth. Just to go back to it, because we mentioned it a couple times already in the show, the Ascension of Isaiah oh. depicts uh, from sixty seven eight from AD sixty seven depicts a bright light filling the room where Mary is. And then Jesus just appears there Uh when the light fades uh, outside of her womb. And so if there was a miraculous birth like that, then, uh, then uh, presumably the 
the placenta and the uh, the amniotic sac and the umbilicus were already detached from Jesus. Yeah. On the other hand, maybe they all teleported out of the womb and someone did have to cut it. We don't know. Uh, Rob, thanks for uh, ending, allowing us to end with a very good weird question. Uh, it's always fun to do weird questions. Once again, some great questions and answers. And that's it from us. What are your theories about these weird questions that Jimmy answered for New Year's? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. Uh, if you have a need for video or animation work, be sure to check them out. You can see the work they do by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel. So I'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new video, whether it's a Mysterious World video or something else. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? The next two episodes, so the first episodes in January, are going to uh, be interviews. We're going to have a special guest who is a world-famous Egyptologist. His name is Dr. Bob Breyer. He's an excellent teacher. I've taken uh, classes from him on the great courses that are wonderful. And in next week's episode, we're going to be talking about the Egyptian afterlife, what Egyptians thought happened after you die. And they have a really different view of the afterlife than uh, people in the Judeo-Christian tradition have. It's, it's, it's interesting. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and then the episode after that, uh, we're going to be talking about one of the things they did to prepare people for the afterlife, which was mummify them. So next week, it's Egyptian afterlife. And the week after that, we're going to be hearing all about mummies. Nice. Are you my mummy? Uh, that's a Doctor Who reference. Uh, folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion in our show notes at Mysterious.fm slash 239. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com A-A-R-O-N-V.com Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest, and Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Howdy, folks. 
This is Jimmy Aiken with a special message. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Here on Mysterious World, we've continued to expand our video audience on YouTube with shows that provide extra content and context for our discussion of the mysteries, as well as more interviews with experts and bonus content that goes beyond our weekly episodes. We want to continue improving the show and keep reaching even more people while providing you with the fascinating mysteries that you enjoy every week. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 a month or even just $10 a month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for StarQuest this Christmas. And remember that your gifts are tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season. Thank you. <laughs>